morning, friends. Glad that you're here today. Thank you so much for coming and making some time to uh, come and worship together with us here at Southbridge. I know some of you are in and out of town and lots of busy lives, and some of you might be visiting from out of town. We're glad you're here. Um, if you are a guest today, for whatever reason, we just want to point you to our worship program. There's a little card in there we call our connection card. If you wouldn't mind taking a moment, filling that out, letting us know you're with us today, and taking it out to the first-time guest kiosk, we'll make a donation to a ministry that tries to connect people to Jesus for life change because you filled that card out, and then also um, just a way for us to know how in the world did you hear about us, and so we'd love to know that. And for those of you who are regular attenders, you might want to use that card as well for a prayer request or different information that you want to request, or if you want to get connected to a team or small group or anything like that, you can use that card. But then also today we have our blue tent outside for uh, getting connected on a team, or maybe you know been here for a little bit and it's time to take that next step and get connected with some folks, um, the blue tent out there after the service. And today what we're going to do right here Let's continue in our Red Letter series. It's been our summer series that's really based off of Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It's oftentimes called the Great Commission. It is the mission of the lives of those who are believers, followers of Jesus Christ. So if you're a member of our church, it's the mission of your life. If you said, profess faith in Jesus Christ, this is God's mission for your life. And it says, go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. If you want to be baptized, you can use the connection card to let us know that too. And then teaching them, teaching those that you're discipling, the people that you're helping to learn how to follow Jesus better, everything to obey everything that jesus commanded and the key word there is to obey but then the question becomes do we even know the things that jesus commanded and many of us don't even know the things that jesus commanded and been following jesus for a long time we're like what are all the commands we're not sure and so we've been doing this series called red letters oftentimes in english translations of the bible they'll take the words of jesus and write them in red Within those red letters are different commands of Jesus that we're supposed to obey. And so we at least have to know them before we can obey them, much less teach them to someone else. And so that's what we've been doing in this series. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, you want to get there ahead of time. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 11, perhaps one of the most famous invitations at the end of a message that Jesus ever gave that you maybe have ever heard before. Matthew chapter 11, we're looking specifically at verses 28 through 30. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll jump into the message of Matthew chapter 11 this morning. Let me pray. Father... Uh, We come before you this morning and acknowledge that you are God and we are not, that you are seated on your throne, that you are sovereign even when uh, things seem crazy in this world and in our lives, and uh, we ask you to meet with us this morning. Will you please be here? Will you please be present? Will you please speak into our lives, into the individual things that are happening, into the big things that are happening around our country and around the world? Um, I pray that you would embolden and encourage uh, believers that are being persecuted I pray for those who are apathetic, that you'd wake us up. I pray for those that are in sin, that you'd pull us out of that and help us to walk in your freedom and the plan that you have for us. I pray for those that are confused, that you'd bring clarity. I pray for those that are prideful, that you'd humble. And I pray, God, that as we take your word this morning, that your word would go forth and that hearts would be encouraged, that people would find rest and that burdens would be lifted. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I want to start by just asking you a basic question. You may get asked multiple times in the lobby today, actually, how was your week? And before you come up with an answer in your head, you can't just say good or bad. How was your week? And so I'll just let you know a little bit about my week. Uh, We have four children, and three of those children were in different day camps at different times this week. And so we were trying to figure out how to taxi them to different places and be at those different events that were taking place. Plus, we had our normal activities of just pastoring this church and trying to encourage people, some people in and out of the hospital, and trying to be there for folks that marriages are struggling, people got questions about the Bible and talk about that, and then the normal leadership stuff uh, that happens in our church. Plus, I'm married, and so I try to spend time with my wife and do some of that, and I'm a Christian, so 
try to spend some time with the Lord. And also somewhere in there, uh, I'm supposed to fit in three meals a day, sleeping and exercise at some point. I've also gone back to school, so I was working a little bit on writing a project that I'm supposed to be doing for that. And uh, it was busy, but normal week. How was yours? Think of the things you actually had to do this week. I bet you the details were probably different than mine, but you're no less busy. In fact, some of you might be far busier than I could even imagine. We're all busy people in living in this world. Thinking about the message that we're going to do today, I did a little bit of research, a little bit of reading about some of the things that were happening and how busy we are as a culture. There's a book that actually came out in 1992, so it's a little dated. It's a little about 20, over 20 years old, uh, called The Overworked American. In that book, they actually did a study from 1970 to 1990 about how much more people worked in 1990 than they did in 1970. The people worked, the average American worked a full month more than the people did in 1970. I wonder what it's been like in the next 20 years. How much do we work now? A survey by the Bureau of Labor Institute that does all these uh, statistics on just the labor information says that the average American uh, estimates that they work about 49 hours a week. That was of 25, 25 million people that were surveyed. 11 million of those people actually work 59 hours a week, which is also interesting when you start to read some of the studies that have been done on sleep. Did you know that in 1850, the average night's sleep was nine and a half hours? Can you even fantasize about a nine and a half hour night's sleep? That was like when you were a teenager and you slept till noon, right? Nine and a half hours. Then by 1950, 100 years later, the average uh, night's sleep was eight hours sleep. Today, the average American sleeps less than seven hours a night. So we work more, we sleep less. And we're pretty busy folks just in general. If you just observe us, just step back and watch. We carry these little computers around in our pockets we call smartphones. I don't know if the phone's smart or if we're smart or what's up and happening there, but we're continually being notified, so we're always looking at it, whether it's a text message or social message, whatever messages that are coming through, the instant message, whatever. Messages just coming through on this thing, and we've got to look at it because our calendars are packed, and there's always stuff to do, and there's more things happening. We get frustrated when we're on an express line for more than five minutes. Think about that. If you don't think we're stressed out people, I challenge you to do this even on a Sunday. Next time you're sitting at a stoplight near the first car and it turns green, count to three. See if anyone else notices. We're busy people moving all over the place. And the image I get in my mind when I think about, if you were to just watch, like if you could zoom out, like Google Maps, like just zoom out and start watching Americans, it'd be like watching an ant colony of ants just running all over the place. Have you ever seen that? Remember one time I was in Ecuador, I was with a bunch of other pastors, we were at a wildlife park, and they were showing us these cats that were chasing each other around, some predatory cats, I don't even know what it was, but we started, we got distracted, all these pastors did, by these ants that were coming down this tree, running along this path, going up this tree, and then coming back out, and doing it over and over and over again, it seemed like there were millions of them, and the tour guide noticed that we were distracted, so he started to tell us about the ants, and he said, if you notice the ants, he said, if you look really closely, they're all running around and scurrying around, but only about 20% of them are actually doing any work. <laughs> so that was a great analogy for the church, right? When volunteerism, and you look at there, it's like 20% of the people doing the thing. So we start looking, we start getting focused in on these ants. And they're going around at like a frantic pace. Some of the ants are climbing over top of other ants. And there's probably some messages in that. Some of the ants were carrying other ants. I thought, man, how lazy is that ant? But who knows, maybe they twisted an ant ankle or something. I don't know. And then it was true, about 20% of the ants were carrying things. It was interesting to see how big the things were they were carrying. Some of them were bigger than their body, like leaves that were like twice the size of the body of the ant. Some of them were carrying pieces of food, all kinds of different stuff. And I started to think about us. And we're, bu- we're all busy. Every one of you, if I ask you how your week was, it might be good, it might be bad, but I'm sure it was busy. And then you put on top of that, some of us are carrying around other stuff. Burdens. Some of them are big burdens. Not the kind of burdens you carry around in a backpack or a duffel bag or a suitcase or a purse, but those count too. 
but emotional burdens and spiritual burdens. And I, I wrote down some of the ones that I've carried around, some of the ones that I know friends of mine have carried around. And, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but this might identify with some of you. Some people carry around the burden that it's just too much, just all the calendar, all the things that are happening. And so it's just you can't handle it all. There's too many things happening. The burden of someone else's spiritual well-being. If you ever carried that one, that'll kill you. A health burden for you or for someone you love. An emotional burden. Some people carry these emotional burdens for you or maybe for someone you love. Financial burden. Not just not knowing how is it going to all happen financially. There are social burdens. Not fitting in. Not having intimacy. Feeling alone. Isolated. Misunderstood. Like you never fit in. Physical burdens of aging or illness. The burden of mental illness. There's one can even talk about that. The burden of the unknown. You don't know what's going to happen next. And it just feels heavy on you not knowing what's going to happen next. The burden of unforgiven sin that you've hidden or tried to suppress for a long time. The burden of inadequacy, a feeling you don't measure up. The burden of anxiety over things you can't control. The burden of strife and stress in relationships. The burden of a broken or barely hanging on marriage. The burden of cancer. The burden of guilt, sometimes real, sometimes false. The burden of shame. The burden of perfectionism, the burden of doubt, the burden of unanswered questions, the burden of why, the burden of keeping up appearances, the burden of people-pleasing, the burden of a job situation, the burden of responsibility, and all the people counting on you. The burden of marriage, the burden of not being married, the burden of kids, the burden of not having kids. We just keep going. It's almost limitless how many burdens there are. And for some of you, you're carrying those. And many of you are busy. And for everybody who's weary and burdened, today's message is for you. It's a call by Jesus, an invitation for everybody who's weary from doing all the busyness and all the people that are carrying the heavy loads. It's an invitation that he gives in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. If you have your Bible, you can join me there. It's the end of some preaching that he's been doing, some pretty tough preaching. In order to understand the invitation of what's said in verses 28 through 30, you've got to know what's taking place starting at the very beginning of the chapter. Jesus gives this invitation to rest. So everybody who needs some rest, today's message is for you. But to know what's happening, there's this guy named John the Baptist. And if you haven't heard of John the Baptist, he was the forerunner to Jesus. He actually preached a message that said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the one who baptized Jesus. And you know what's happening in his life? He's struggling with doubt. He's got the burden of doubt. And so he sends some of his disciples to Jesus. So these disciples show up, but not Jesus' disciples, John the Baptist's disciples. And they ask Jesus, Are you the one... This is coming from John the Baptist. Are you the one or should we expect someone else? And then Jesus says, tell him that the blind receive sight and the lame walk and I'm preaching good news to the poor and I've raised the dead and I've even healed lepers. And then he starts to preach to the people. Verses 7 through 19 about their hard hearts. And then verses 20 through 24 he calls them to repentance. That message he was preaching from the very beginning, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Mark chapter 1. Repent, turn from the way that you're going, turn to me. And he says to the people, listen, I've done so many miracles in front of you that if I did those miracles in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. But you won't. The issue is not that you don't have enough information. The issue is you're proud. And so verse 25, he really puts his finger on the hearts of proud people. He says, I praise you, Father. Lord of heaven, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned. It's not that they were too smart for Jesus, that they were self-dependent, proud. He said, but you revealed them to children. What are children like? Children are dependent. It's not age discrimination. It's not that, hey, the only kids can get this and adults can't. It's not intelligence issue. It's not you can't be too smart for Jesus. He's saying the proud don't get this. And then he gives this invitation. 
Verse 28, after he talks about hard hearts, after he talks about the burden of doubt, after he talks about the poor people, after he talks about the diseases and the illnesses and all the burdens that people carry, and he says, but pride, proud people won't respond. Verse 28, he says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. It's the only place in the Gospels where Jesus talks about his own heart. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Here Jesus gives this invitation. Did you see who it was to? Like we talked about last week. Uh, go back to the first verse that we read, verse 28. And it says, come to me all. Now, if you remember last week, we were talking about following Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, and Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me. And I asked you, how many of you here are anyone? Most of you raised your hands. For some reason, a few people didn't raise your hands. Anyone meant everyone. Here in this passage, he says, come to me all. But that doesn't include everyone. You can see it here. He says all, but then he gives a couple qualifications for the all that he's talking to. There's two participles. They're not I-N-G words in the English, but he says all who are weary and burdened. Do you know what this excludes? This excludes everybody who he talked about back in verse 25. Everyone who's proud. So it's all, because anyone who's proud won't acknowledge their need for him. They might play religious games. Pray for me. I need, you know, I'm just dependent on Jesus. Trust Jesus. Let go and let God. All that kind of stuff. But actually... Turning it over to Jesus would acknowledge you can't do it on your own. And who he's talking to here, he gives us qualifications of the weary and burdened. Two participles. They mean different things. And they're actually, it's, it's actually important to know the first one is actually a present active participle. The second one is actually a past passive participle. A, a weary person is someone who gets um, tired out from doing all the work that they're doing. There, there's a lot of toil, a lot of things that they've done. In the context of our passage, it may be speaking about people who've been doing a bunch of busy things to try and please God. People have been doing a bunch of stuff to make God love them more, trying to work off many of the difficult things that are in life, any of the other things that have happened. It's all, it's all the activity. It's a present active. It's a continual thing, and they're weary because of their busyness. The second word, burden, some of your translations may have heavy laden. The definition, the picture that's used here is of someone who's had a load placed on them. First word is present active. It's something they're doing, actively doing. This word is past and it's passive. Someone else in the past has placed this load on you. So something that was done maybe to you. Maybe the load comes, the burden, the heavy ladenness comes just from life. That we live in a dark, sin-broken world. Maybe it was abuse, physical, sexual, verbal abuse, heavy loads that are placed on you. Maybe it was something else. Maybe it was shrapnel from somebody else's sin. Maybe it's uh, some other scar, some words that were said. And then there's a, a third audience. And this might be some of you, and if it's not you, I hope you'll have great compassion. It's those who are both, both weary and burdened, busy working and tiring themselves out in their own strength, in their own flesh, trying to do stuff, maybe even stuff for God, and then also carrying the load from something that's happened in the past. And if either of those or both of those apply to you, Jesus gives the invitation and he gives three commands in this passage. Two of them are going to be our two points today. Two commands that are required in order to receive the promise of rest that he says that he will give. 
The first command is to come to him. The second command is to take up his work. And so the first command will be our first point today. If you want the rest that Jesus promises here, which is more than a nap, it's more than a good night's sleep, it's a different kind of rest, a revolutionary kind of rest, then we must come to him. So we must come to the person of Jesus for rest. The first point has to do with the person of Jesus. The second point will have to do with the work of Jesus. And so we're talking about a unique kind of rest because it's a kind of rest that's not a break from the work. It's actually an enablement to deal with the reality. It's not just an escape from things and pretending we don't have problems. It's an equipping to be able to deal with real life. And to rest, a soul rest, verse 29, different than a nap, different than a vacation, different than a break, different than some kind of pill you can take, different than some, some escape into some other thing. And the way that it happens is you've got to come to Jesus. Come to him and then take up his work. It's a call to discipleship. In fact, it's a very similar and totally different image, but similar call that we talked about last week in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. But you've got to obey the commands. In order to experience the rest, very few people, even believers in Jesus, will actually experience the rest that Jesus is talking about here. But try and imagine you're there that day Then Jesus is preaching this message. So these guys come, these disciples show up, and you see it. If you're a person who's ever struggled with doubt, what do you think when you see John the Baptist disciples show up and say that John the Baptist is doubting? And then you see how Jesus responds. Jesus doesn't respond by saying, come on, you're John the Baptist. No one born greater than you, and you can't doubt, believe in me. He doesn't rebuke him. He's not shaken by the questioning. It's not difficult for him. Jesus says, well, just go tell him who I am. Tell him what I'm doing. Tell him what you see. He's the one who has to make a faith decision for himself. But you can show him the evidence. The blind receive sight. Do you think there were blind people that were there? Hearing about other people, other blind people receiving sight? Who do you think was in the crowd that day? He's been preaching good news to the poor. If you're a poor person and you hear about this guy, Jesus, are you gonna, could you use some good news? There are poor people that have showed up that day. And, and you hear that Jesus raised people from the dead. You know what that means? He can deal with your burden. Lepers are showing up because Jesus heals lepers. And so is everyone else who feels like a social outcast, like they're not good enough, like they don't fit in. And so that's the crowd of people that are there. And also in that crowd of people are Pharisees. Pharisees are the religious leaders. They're always there when Jesus is preaching. They're checking his teaching. They want to know if he gets it right. And when they hear the bad things, and they're talking about the things that not bad, but they don't agree with, then they're coming up with a case, a reason to accuse Jesus, to get other people not to believe in Jesus. You know what Jesus says about the Pharisees? You can read this on your own later. In Matthew chapter 23 and verse 4, he says that you heap loads on people with your religion, and you don't even lift a finger to help them carry the loads. And so you've got these people there. Some are poor, some are ill. Many difficult and different things that are taking place. And then you heap on top of that, their religion is actually causing a burden for them. Now, shouldn't religion be the relief? Let me tell you something today. Don't miss this. Jesus didn't come to start a religion. In fact, we're going to preach a series of messages in the fall talking about how Jesus hates religion. Jesus didn't call people to a religion. He's not calling us to a discipline. He's not calling us to a system here. He's calling us to himself as a person here. And the problem for the Pharisees when he's rebuking them for heaping a load on people was not the Old Testament law. The law was not what was a burden. It was their oral traditions, their religion, and all the things they added to the law. In fact, they had rules about keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the day of rest. There's, there's rules about how to rest. And you find in the next part, in uh, Matthew chapter 12, the next two encounters Jesus has are, are arguments over the Sabbath, arguments about how to rest. 
They had so many rules. They told you how far you could walk from your house on the Sabbath day, what you could lift, what you couldn't lift, who you could help, who you couldn't help. And it all came from their oral traditions. And you couldn't even keep up with all the things that were the rules, much less keep all the rules. Some of you know what that's like. It depends on what branch of Christianity you come from, where at in the country you came from, and what denomination you came from, what all the rules are for Christianity. Some of you identify, I'll just give you some examples. You're not supposed to like Santa Claus. Heard that one before? Where's Santa Claus mentioned in the Bible? Not. There's certain beverages you can and cannot drink. Where's that mentioned in the Bible? Not. We see examples, and they don't go in favor of usually the people that talk about those things. Certain kind of music you can like, can't like. Certain people you can be around and not be around. Certain political affiliations you can have and not have. But you know what's interesting? There are people that profess to be Christians that pick both. Where's that in the Bible? Some of you can't even fathom that there's a category of people that pick the opposite political party than you. (laughs) Yeah, there are. Uh, see, the Republicans will say that that's their side because of issues like abortion, um, issue, you know, some ethical issues. Uh, Democrats will say that they'll pick because of social issues. You say, those are the social issues. No, <laughs> like helping the poor. How about those issues? So I've talked to people from both sides. You know where that all comes from? It's not the Bible. It's your oral traditions. And do you know what ends up happening for us? We start thinking that that's Christianity, following the oral traditions. And so we run around and we get weary trying to do all the right stuff. And add to that the burdens. So what does it sound like when Jesus says, I'm not calling you to a religion. Do you know what Jesus was calling us to? A person. Go back to the passage. How many personal pronouns are in there? We'll put a slide up. It'll highlight them for you. Jesus says, not come to God. He's declaring himself to be God here. Not come to Christianity. Not come to some system. Not come to some discipline. Come to me. All who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What if I told you, some of you, you recognize you're carrying burdens. Some of you are tired out. What if I told you, I know a guy He's in downtown Raleigh. He has an office. I've got his card. Come see me after the service, and I'll give you his card. He'll take your burdens. He'll take your weariness. He is a doctor. He's a physician. He's a counselor. Uh, He's a comforter. He's a friend. He's a cross-bearer. All you have to do is come. Just come to me. I'll give you his card. You meet this guy. It's a person. You go see this person. He's a great counselor. He'll listen to your problems. He's a great friend. He'll take your burdens from you. You have to give them the burdens, would you? Some of you wouldn't. Even though you know that you're weary, even though you acknowledge that you're heavy laden, because you won't let go of those things. Because if you go to him, you're going to actually have to give him those things. And while some of us will play religious games, pray for me, I'm super busy, which we wear as almost nobility. I've got this thing that's happened, just found out this thing from the doctor, whatever the details are. I'm playing religious games, but we're not really ready to hand those things over. Some of us, we've held on to them so tight, it's like part of our identity. These things that have happened from the past, the things that have happened, we, we can't move past them. We continue to hang on to them. Oh, I prayed about it one time, it's gone. But we're still holding on. Makes me think of a story I read this week. I was reading about um, a woman that was in the tsunami. I don't know if you remember the tsunami story from about a decade ago. It was about 2004, a tsunami hit in uh, Thailand. This woman was on vacation in Thailand with her family, her husband, two kids, a two-year-old and a five-year-old at the time. And she said, we decided we were going to go swimming. My husband went back up to the hotel room to grab his swimsuit. 
And then she was still down there playing with these kids. And she said she heard a sound that came over top of her. It sounded like a jet plane. And so she looked up into the sky and she didn't see anything, which was weird. And so she started to look in this other direction and saw all the birds flying away. Then two security guards came running past her with their walkie-talkies going off. She said, I turned and looked down the street and there was this mass of water coming at us. I grabbed my two-year-old, carried him in my arms, and I grabbed the five-year-old by the hand, and we started to run, and they ran into this hotel and got up on the breakfast bar. There were so many people on the breakfast bar, and water started coming in, and as the water came in really strong, she said, I knew if I held on to both of my kids, none of us would make it. And so she had to decide which kid she was going to let go of. Parents, can you even imagine which child do I let go of? She let go of her five-year-old. So she could have an arm to still swim and get debris away and move and grab a hold of stuff. Over 5,000 people died that day. By God's grace, her five-year-old survived, her two-year-old survived, and she survived. But can you even imagine that moment of deciding, who to let go of? Or do you just go down with both of them? How do you make that decision even? For some of you, that's what it's like to let go of your burdens. To actually let it, to, let, to give it over to Jesus Christ. For some of us, it'd be easier just to find an escape somewhere else, and so we'll settle for a different kind of rest. We'll just take, take a vacation and pretend like the problems don't exist for a week, <laughs> and then come back. And we'll find escape in television, or food, or our jobs, or exercise, or working so hard to get other people's approval, doing things that look like God things, and so many of them seem good, but you know what it's called? It's idolatry. Whenever we're putting something in a place that only belongs to Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, come to a good vacation. Come to work. Come to these things, your medications and alcohol and sex. And you can put the bad things in there too. It's all the same. He says, you come to me. Come to the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, what does that mean? Because the reality is I don't have a business card for Jesus to give you after the service. He doesn't have an office in downtown Raleigh. He's not walking around here. Does this passage only apply to the people that were actually physically present when he was preaching this message that could physically come to him? No, it's a call to all of us. The command to come we see all throughout the New Testament. It's actually a call to faith. Every time you see him saying come to people, he's saying trust me. He's saying believe me. In John chapter 6 he says it to a group of people that are coming and all they want is another meal. They just want the next meal because he's fed the 5,000 and then he says to them, he gives them this promise, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So when Jesus he says come to me for salvation, he's promising an all-you-can-eat buffet with sushi. He's promising, it's a word picture, he's promising I can give satisfaction to your souls. The thing, you're long, the thing you really want isn't the next meal. The thing you really want is satisfaction. The thing you really want is rest. The thing you really want is joy. The thing you really want is a purpose. You want your life to matter. I give all of that in eternal life, but you've got to come to me. What does come to me mean? Well, the second part of the verse is a parallel. He who believes in me, come and believe, same thing, will never be thirsty. It's not an all-you-can-drink fountain either. He uses thirst oftentimes as a picture for eternal life that he's offering. John chapter 4, there's the woman at the well. Talk about somebody who's weary and burdened. She's coming in the middle of the day because she can't come any other time. She's socially ostracized. She's been married five times. She's shacking up with a guy who's not her husband. Think she's got burdens? And Jesus says, I'll give you water so you'll never thirst again. But guess what you have to do? Believe in me. Come to me. 
Almost one of the last verses in the Bible is a continual call to come. In Revelation, the last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of eternal life, the water of life. Classic passage on the, the command to come is in Matthew chapter 14. You can read it on your own, but what ends up happening in Matthew chapter 14 is Jesus with his disciples. The crowds have been around. He sends his disciples off in a boat, a bunch of fishermen, right? He sends them in a boat to cross the water. He stays back to pray. It's about six o'clock in the evening when he sends them off in the boat. They struggle at the oars, we find out, for nine hours until three o'clock in the morning. So for nine hours they've been doing this, and John tells they go about three miles. Some of you are math people, and you're thinking to yourself, so they went for nine hours, they went three miles an hour. How fast was that? Slow. It's really slow. Okay, they're not even a mile an hour they're going, but they're fighting, and they're in this boat, which they're very comfortable in. That's important. Keep that in mind. They struggle at the oars against the wind and against the waves for nine hours, and Jesus knows the whole time. He's there. He's praying. He can see them. Why didn't he intervene sooner? What's going on? Well, they're getting weary with all their work. They're in their boat. And Jesus comes walking on the water towards them. The text tells us in Matthew chapter 14 that they are terrified. They scream out. They're terrified. A little pause. Um, Women, do you know what it sounds like when you have 12 men together and they scream and there's no woman present? You don't because you're a woman. I'm going to reveal a man's secret right now. It sounds like a junior high little girl. That's how we scream. When you're, not, when you're around, it's, whoa, hey, what? When you're not around, ah! You know, it's terrible. I had a squirrel try to attack me on a run this week. I was out jogging this week, uh, Wednesday morning. And they, usually they're all spastic. They'll be down at the bottom of a tree, and they run up the tree. Well, I go running by, and I'm not paying much attention. And he runs, I don't know if he was rabid or what, but he comes running at my feet. I was, ah! Two-foot jump over. And he went back up the tree, but whatever. It's terrible. It's scary. So when we scream, when we're terrified, we scream like little girls. There's 12 guys in this boat. Sounds like a sorority house, not a fraternity house. Okay? They're, they're terrified. They're crying out. And Jesus says, don't be terrified. Take courage. It is I. Calls him to his person. And then there's one guy in the boat. Why not the other 11 is the question. One guy in the boat who's doing his own thing. If it is you... Tell me to come, Peter says. And we dog Peter out for what happens later in this passage. But let me read to you Matthew chapter, or Matthew chapter 14 and what he ends up saying here in verse 29. He says, Jesus speaking now, red letters, come. One word command. And look what happens. Then Peter got down out of the boat. He walked on water and came toward Jesus. It's a picture of faith. And here's Peter. He, gets to, he does something no other human has ever done. Why don't the other 11 guys go? Wow, that's awesome. You're walking on water. I'm going. You know, it doesn't happen. Because they're comfortable in their boat. That's where they're comfortable at. To step out of the boat takes faith. The call to come is a call to trust. It's not just to physically walk up to Jesus. It's to trust Jesus. And many of us won't trust Jesus with our burdens. We won't trust Jesus with the things that are wearying us out. We won't give him our calendars. We won't give him our lives. We'll talk a good talk, but we're not going to hand it over because that's hard. What does Jesus say? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, anxious. You've got a heavy load. Why? Because I care for you. And we'll quote this, Cast your cares upon me because I care for you. But have you ever read the verse right before this? It's really key. First Peter chapter 5 and verse 6 
It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And then verse 7, cast your cares upon me because I care. So who won't do this? Those of us who are too proud. I got it. I mean, yeah, life's rough and there's things, but I'm, I got this thing. come to me, Jesus says, come to the person of me, which means trust me with your stuff. Trust me with your burdens. Trust me with the things that have been laid on you in the path. Trust me with the things that are happening in your life now. Trust me, and I will give you soul rest. I will give you a supernatural rest. But it's not just that command. There's another command. And I I don't put the third one in there because the second and third really go together. He says, take up in that verse 29, take up your, my yoke, or NIV, take my yoke upon you and learn, be my disciples, the same idea there, learn from me, it's a call to discipleship. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so the command there is take my yoke upon you. What is a yoke? Well, it's work, is what he's talking about. If you want to experience the rest of Jesus, you have to take up the yoke, the work of Jesus Christ. For those of us who are going to experience God's rest, this supernatural rest, this revolutionary kind of rest, we've got to do the work of Jesus. And that kind of revolution, it seems like an oxymoron almost. In order to rest, we've got to do work. When I think of rest, I think of vacation. I think of not dealing with it. I think of putting my head on the pillow and falling asleep. Like as soon as my head hits the pillow, I think about it being done. No more work. And Jesus is calling us to a different kind of rest. And he calls it here in this passage, yoke. <laughs> I don't use that word very much. I don't know if you use that word very much. There's egg yoke. Every once in a while you hear a Christian say uh, you shouldn't be unequally yoked, and that means a believer marrying a non-believer. That's not what you'd want in a marriage. The Bible even says not to do that. But I don't use the word yoke. I don't yoke around with people. I don't get yoked. These are misuses of the word, by the way. I don't, I don't ever say, man, I've got a lot of yoke to get done that work. That's what he's talking about. I just don't use that word. and say It's a farm word. And the idea was it was a, a yoke was a wood harness that you put on the shoulders, oftentimes of an animal. And so you talk about being equally yoked to be like two oxes together. You don't want to be unequally yoked. And so they're going to fight against each other in that process, which happens in a marriage with a believer and a non-believer. They're actually fight, uh, torn against each other. And so he's saying here, put this yoke, and it could be over just one animal as well. It makes the work much easier. But it's an instrument of work. See, Jesus didn't call us to take up a mattress, take up a chair. I read one person say this week, take up a cross. It's an instrument of work. Some people will be upset by that. So what about grace? It's all the work that he did. True. But if you have faith in the grace, then guess what that leads to? Work. Faith without deeds is dead. It's not real faith. And so it's not just a a let go and let God. He's calling us to work. He's calling us to activity. He's calling us to put our faith in action. It's going to be his work. Not the kind that leads to weariness, though. Talk about that. And he says here in this passage something that's bothered me about this invitation for a long time. He says, my yoke is easy. I know some of you travel in and out and all that stuff. If you're a guest and like you came for the first time last week, and then you hear this message this week, you'd be like, man, which message am I getting? Because last week's message, this week's message don't seem like the same thing. Here he's saying it's easy. Did you hear last week? Take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. What does it mean to deny yourself? It means saying no to you. Not just no to your desires, not just no to your you know, dreams, not just no to possessions, not just no to your preferences. It's a, it's, a, it's a no. It's living out repentance. You're going in a direction. You realize it's the wrong direction. I'm going to then now live my life for Christ. And what does that mean? Take up a cross. What does it mean to bear a cross? Well, it doesn't mean you have a colic in your hair. It's the cross I bear. No. It's a death sentence. Jesus called to follow him for anyone to come and die. How is that easy? That doesn't sound easy. 
and you read some of his other teachings. If you've read the Sermon on the Mount, we haven't really talked about it much in this series, Matthew chapter 5 through 8, 7, uh, Matthew chapter 5. Just read Matthew chapter 5. And read some of the stuff in Matthew chapter 5. The teachings of Jesus. So he told the Pharisees that their burden was too much, that they put heavy loads on people. But look at what Jesus says. Jesus says, you, you heard it said not to commit adultery. Do you know what Jesus defines adultery as? Like we argue in our culture of two dudes talking about their sex life is, is bad. And Jesus says, not even when you just do physical things, when you just have sex outside of the marriage that I've defined between one man and one woman, it's when you fantasize about it. So Jesus takes it to like another level. We argue in our culture about whether somebody committed murder. You can have an eyewitness that saw someone shoot someone. It takes like two years through the court system before that person's found guilty or not guilty. Jesus says, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder before God. It's impossible. If you can read the Sermon on the Mount and go, eh, Interesting. You got problems. There, his his level of what he's calling us to. Have you seen anybody who's tried to do it? Have you ever read the book of Acts? You see the first missionaries. They go out. They start preaching the gospel. So you say, "Go make disciples of all nations." They go to Jerusalem. They're preaching the gospel. It's going well for the first three chapters. Chapter four, they get called before the Sanhedrin, which is the religious leaders, the Pharisees, all those guys. And they say, um, you can't use the name Jesus anymore. They say, well, we're going to use the name Jesus. They say, well, please don't. And now you can head on your way and say, well, we're going to. And they do. And they go out and they start preaching. In chapter 5, they get called in and said, we told you not to do that. We said we'd kill you if you did that. Flog these guys. They get flogged. That doesn't seem easy to me. And so Jesus does this call to us that he actually expects us to be holy. It's not just, oh, don't worry about it. I died on the cross. You, you do whatever you want, which is sometimes how we treat it. He says, take up your cross, deny yourself, you're going to follow me. Uh, if your eye causes you sin, pluck it out. Your hand causes you sin, cut it off. He's serious. He's talking about this. You take sin seriously. You deal with the commands that I give you seriously. I want you to preach in my name, even when it means persecution. In this world, you will have troubles. There will be persecution. They hated me, they're going to hate you. He means all this stuff. And it doesn't sound easy. But there's a verse that unlocks it all for me. And I'm going to share that verse with you. It's in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. John says this, this is love for God, relational language, interesting. To obey his commands, those are rules. And his commands, this is key, are not burdensome. How is that? Because it goes back to the context. Oftentimes when we think about the rules of God, we think about the commands that he has, we just think about a system, we think about a religion, we think about rules. And we forget the relationship they happen in the context of. And this is love for God. And so if you're a parent, you've got rules for your kids. And it's because you love them. It's not because you're trying to be oppressive to them. It's not because you're trying to make their lives harder and more difficult. It's because you want to give them tracks to run on so they can be as successful as they possibly can be in life. And so God's got a plan for our lives, and he wants to live out that plan. And so he gives us these rules out of love. And what we oftentimes forget is the context of relationship. It makes me think of my commencement speech when I graduated from uh, seminary in Dallas, uh, Texas. I don't know if you've ever been to a commencement before. They are snoozers. Okay? So the commencement speeches are always like the worst talk. It's like a rule if you're giving a commencement. You've got to come up with a lot of boring stuff to say and just really punish them for a little while before that last hoop they have to jump for to get a degree, which is actually a fake piece of paper. They mail you the real one later. I don't know how many of those you've been through or not. That's kind of the system and how all this happens. But I had a speaker at my commencement speech who gave an, it was an amazing commencement speech. His name was Josh McDowell, and he's speaking to a bunch of people that are going to be missionaries, and some people that are like super smart, they're going to write whole books on like one Greek word, and people are going to be pastors, and all this stuff, and he doesn't give a speech on like dying in a tree when savages are chasing you, or uh, some academic speech. He gave a speech about our families. 
And, and I remember, I can still remember the first point. The first point in his message was rules without relationship leads to rebellion. If you have rules without a relationship, and he started talking about his own kids, they will rebel. My wife and I were actually not in the context of this sermon. We're talking about it with our own kids this week. Rules without relationship, they're going to rebel to that. They've they got to know the relationship. So then you think about the cost of discipleship. What if somebody just asks you to do something really hard? Somebody said, hey, we need you to donate an organ. That'd be tough. It'd be a sacrifice. You had to give your kidneys to someone. Someone came up to me after the service and said, you've got to give your kidneys, Scott. I'd think to myself, well, what is that going to mean for me in the rest of my life and what other activities I have to do? And, and then I'm going to think about the procedure and how much risk is involved in the procedure and what's actually going to happen with this. But then if they told me, you're giving the kidney for your brother. Then I would think, I get to be the one? The context of relationship now? I, I'm a match? It would work? Like It would be my joy to give my kidney to my brother because of the relationship. And so we're called to do these things by Christ. There's no sacrifice in the Christian life. There can't be a sacrifice. You're going to be rewarded far more than anything you're going to give. The sacrifice is impossible. Momentary and light affliction, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, are going to be far outweighed by a surpassing glory we're going to receive. Plus the fact the one who's telling us to do these things, take up your cross, deny yourself, turn the other cheek, not lust. He's not trying to come make our lives hard. The reason why he condemns the Pharisees is because you put loads on people and you don't give a finger to help them lift it. Guess what he gives us? The same spirit that he depended upon to be able to do the things that he's called us to do. Now, not all the busyness that we come up with on our own, and we do in his name and try to donate to him. But the things that he's called us to as we trust him. And that's the key. That's the key part. Is trusting him. That's the relational piece. And what ends up happening here is the second command actually is tied to the first command. The work of Jesus is tied to the person of Jesus. Not the religion and not the rules. The work that we do for Jesus is tied to the person of Jesus Christ. Who actually empowers us to do the work that he's going to then reward us for. As he does the work through us. And we can find joy and these difficult callings. Oh, those guys in Acts chapter 5, they get flogged. Do you know what it says about them? Acts chapter 5, verse 41. We can flash it up there. I won't read the whole thing. They had joy. They rejoiced over the fact that they got to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus became obedient, obedient to death on a cross. How could he do that? Because of the relationship that he had with his father. He said, for the joy set before him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. How can you have joy in those things? Well, those are just, well, he did it because he was Jesus. And those guys were like supernatural. I was reading about a guy this week named David Livingston. He was a, a missionary in Africa, gave his life there. He said he never gave a sacrifice. Does it mean that he never wrestled? No, I'll read you a quote, a David Livingston quote. He says, anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, those sound like heavy loads. Now and then, with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of life, because he moved to this place, they may make us pause. Cause the spirit to waver, the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All of these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Because there's joy. You obey the commands, and the commands are not burdensome. Why? Because that's love for God, because of the trust, the relationship that's there. How is his yoke easy? Oh, what he calls us to is actually impossible. But dependent upon him, by faith, as we come to the person of Jesus, empowered by the spirit of Jesus for the glory of the Father. That's all. Or we can run around like a bunch of ants, and we carry our burdens, and we do all our busy stuff. But we can come to him, all who are weary and burdened.
We have a few minutes left today. And what I'm going to just challenge us to do is to actually take our things to Jesus. Some of you are weary. Some of you are burdened. I'm going to just challenge you, if that's you, to even as we go to prayer, if you just stand up in your seat, we're going to spend some time praying together as a congregation. And you don't have to come down here. I'm not going to ask you what your burden is. I'm not going to ask you why it is that you're standing. No one will do that. Um, but we're just going to have the worship team come. The worship team is going to come up and play some music instrumentally. And we're going to pray for each other as a church. And so if you're burdened, I just challenge you to stand up where you're at right now. Some of you need to give the things over to the Lord. And today needs to be the day where you cast your cares upon him. He cares for you. You come to him if you're weary and you're burdened. And then I'm just challenge the rest of you. Those of you who are sitting around, if you see someone stand up by you, would you pray for that person? Maybe you even see somebody stand up. Maybe you know them or you've been in a small group with them or for some reason you feel compelled. Maybe you go over to them and even put a hand on them and start praying. Pray for them out loud. I'm going to give us some moments to do that. If you're burdened, I just want to challenge you. Stand up in your seat. Even if you're across the hall in Theater 14, um, stand up in your seat. And just acknowledging before the Lord, I, I'm, I'm heavy laden. I'm burdened. I'm weary. Maybe it's your work that you've been doing. Some of you need to trust Christ as your Savior. You don't need more evidence. You need to humble yourself before Him and acknowledge that you can't save yourself.